Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. The 2015 Third Coast Filmless Festival, our weekend-long celebration of all things auditory, is coming up in just about three weeks. As of now, weekend passes are sold out, but you can still buy tickets to individual events. So don't miss out on your chance to witness the audio fiction revolution with Anne Hepperman and Martin Johnson, or to hear Mike Pesca MC this year's awards ceremony. And if you just want to kick back, relax, and listen to great stories in the dark, there are still seats available for our Filmless screenings. For tickets and more details about this year's Filmless Festival, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. We have a brand new resound for you on the podcast this week, and it's all about stories inspired by books. Be it novels or comics, we don't judge. Uh, due to the rights we get from the BBC, we can't play one of those stories on the podcast. It's an award-winning documentary by comedic British poet Tim Key about Nikolai Gogol's short story, The Overcoat. And I'm begging you, please, please, please go to our website and listen to it, because it's unlike any documentary you've ever heard before. But you can only listen to it there for the next 30 days. All right, all sorted on my end. Now, here's this week's podcast. This is the sound of my favourite short story. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Writing is just his want, a thing he does. So at the same time as he's having this feeling of envy, he's also thinking about how maybe there could be a story in there somewhere. A pathetic story of a little man who's abused by everybody has this moment of glory which is snatched from him and he's avenged only posthumously. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, podcasts, playlists, and little audio scrawls we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Now on BBC Radio 4, our book at bedtime. The collection is Mike's Comfort. Thing that makes him feel safe. Or it was, until last fall, when Mike's very own Lex Luthor showed up in Granite City. About ten years ago, I was, all of a sudden and out of nowhere, reminded of a book that was read to me by Mrs. McCall, my grade school librarian. 
Since I remembered neither the title nor the author, I called my grammar school library to see if they could help me just by hearing a description of the plot. Grandpa-type figure comes to babysit a family of three children, and every time he lights his pipe, something magical happens. Like their reflections in the mirror start talking to them and step out to play. Or the bathtub they're in breaks away from the wall and starts floating out of the house and over town. Why, yes, the librarian said, that is Mr. Pudgeons. Mr. Pudgeons, of course. Oh, how I loved that book. This week on ReSound, audio stories inspired by the written word, be it a novel or a comic book. Nikolai Gogol, David Foster Wallace, and of course, lest we not forget... Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman. Stay with us. Al Letson is a storyteller and public radio host who is hugely, passionately into comics. And in his search for super stories, he found this Superman superfan. Granite City, Illinois. Just the name sounds like something from a Will Eisner comic book. And things in this city seem to have stopped right around the end of the golden age of comic books, the early 50s. You see, it's an old steel town that at one time was buzzing with life. But today, the signs, the city hall, and this place seems like a time capsule. And it's also the setting for a battle of good versus evil that centers around an unassuming guy in his late 40s. His name is Mike Meyer. He met us on a Sunday morning, fresh from church in a bow tie and a button-up shirt. How you doing? Hi, I'm Mike. This is Crypto and Dino. Hi, Crypto. Crypto, as in Crypto the Superdog. They're good dogs. Come on, Crypto. Mike lives in a little house at the end of a rundown street. When we walked in, 1950s television shows were on TV. And before we could even get in the door, he pointed to the mantelpiece. There's my four favorites right there in case you wanted to know. What's that? Superman's my first, Batman, Popeye, Uh and Herman Munster. So this is the thing you need to know about Mike. Mike loves Superman, loves Superman, probably more than anything else in the world. Comic books, movies, TV spinoffs, if it's Superman, he loves it, and he probably knows everything about it. So is this the Superman room? Still a work in progress. Oh, wow. Wow, this is pretty amazing. What you can't see, radio listener, is that we just walked into a room where every single surface is covered with Superman stuff. Signed photographs, figures, dolls, posters, a huge shelf of comic books in plastic sleeves. There's a twin bed with Superman blankets and pillows. He spent decades building this up, and all the milestones in his life are Superman-related. I'd say, say uh, my biggest involvement was in 1978 on, on December 15th, when that, that Christopher Reeve Superman came out. It was unbelievable. When my father was alive, he took me. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. Yeah. Highlight of my teenage life, you might say. It was the highlight of his teenage life because it's kind of all there was. He grew up in a bad neighborhood in East St. Louis and stayed inside reading comic books after school and on the weekends. A lot of times, you know, as a kid growing up, I don't think people accepted me the way they should have. And uh, why, do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. I was a kid growing up in East St. Louis, and in school I used to be attacked a lot. People used to look down on me. 
in high school. I mean, I was pretty much alienated by most of my high school friends. Mike lives alone here with his dogs and works part-time at McDonald's. He gets by with the help of a disability check because of different mental health conditions. He seems made for the world of comic books, but navigating the outside world can be a challenge for him, and any extra money goes towards his Superman collection. Well, it's pretty much completed. I ran out of shelves. The reason I have this collection is because I'm having a hard time trying to find a woman of the opposite sex, and it's very hard to try to find someone you like who's interested in you. And so this is basically what I do to try to keep my mind off of it. Yeah. This is your fortress of solitude, sort of, huh? Well, the bigger one's in the basement. The bigger one? I thought I was looking at the Superman room, but I was wrong. I'm going to turn on the light. Okay. Holy moly. You've pretty much got almost every figure of Superman ever created. Yeah, I can't believe I said holy moly either. Wall-to-wall Superman. Hundreds and hundreds of items. Does Superman feel like a member of the family almost? It kind of feels like a friend you come home to every day. This this helps. This is like, like when I come home, I not only have my dogs, but I got this to look at. And if I get into a really miserable state, then I come and look at this. The collection is Mike's comfort. The thing that makes him feel safe. Or it was until last fall when Mike's very own Lex Luthor showed up in Granite City. This man was very, very tricky. He, he, he posed as a friend, but he was really a, an enemy. The man's name was Gary Armbruster. Mike actually knew him from around town. They both used to hang out at Hardy's back in the 90s, but he hadn't seen him in about 10 years. When they ran into each other in a local comic shop, Gary asked Mike for his phone number and said he wanted to come over to Mike's house for a visit. He calls me up on the phone. I told him, listen, it's late. He just would not accept no for an answer. So I let him come in. See, I was just trying to be kind because at this point, he didn't do anything to me yet. When Gary got to Mike's house, he zeroed in on the Superman stuff right away. He was asking what I thought my whole collection was worth. He was asking me what my favorite things were, how long I've been doing it. The next time Gary showed up, he brought his girlfriend, brought her inside, and said he had to be in the driveway working on his car. So he's telling me to keep his girlfriend entertained. So we're watching the first episode of the Kirk Allen Superman serial. He says, now you explain that to her. You sit there and explain that to her in that tone of voice. Mike did as he was told. You know, he thought it was weird, but, you know, Gary was working on his car and his girlfriend was bored. The next morning, he noticed something was off. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the Superman room, see if there's anything missing in there. And lo and behold, this whole wall was vacant. This wall behind us. Nothing but figures on it at the time. And every Superman comic I had, he stole it. To say that Mike was devastated would be an understatement. He called the police, then he called his Superman collector friend, Bill Smith, who lives in St. Louis, and he's known Mike for years. This is the first time that I really had seen Mike angry. He was hurt, but he was also really angry. And um, you know, people around Mike had to kind of kind of calm him down and put him in, you know, Mike, it's not going to help if you just, like, hate this person and get angry. He said, no, that's not what Superman would do. Superman would not, you know, would not be angry. He said, but I can't. I can't help it. You know, it's, it, it's, I trusted him and he did this. Mike has always believed in justice and good, but there was no Superman coming to rescue him, and he was sure his collection was gone forever. 
you were really, really upset. Yeah. I mean, you, you were to the point that you were like, you said, I'm just going to give up on Superman, is yeah, what you said. I was, was going to quit collecting altogether yeah. when this happened. I was just going to quit. I'd never heard him so discouraged. I said, well, Mike, you know, maybe we can get this stuff back. Maybe we can figure out something, some way to do it. In his regular life, Bill is an ex-newspaper reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He called every reporter he knew trying to get Mike's story out there. He figured that if enough people heard about it, there would be no way for Arm Brewster to unload such a huge collection without anyone noticing. He got someone to come out to Mike's house and interview him. No one had any idea how far that little article would go. You know, it, it just kind of took off. I mean, pretty soon there were like, you know, five stories about it, ten stories, you know, twenty stories, and, you know, it became this, you know, crazy little thing with a life of its own. I can't remember exactly what the headline was, but it was a very clever headline from the St. Louis Post. And it was basically, the idea was uh, a super fan, Superman fan, could really use some help from Superman. And then it told the story. Of That's Keith Howard a nurse, comic book nerd, and Superman impersonator from Belleville, Illinois, not far from Granite City. So you should know that Keith looks a lot like George Reeves, the iconic Superman from the 50s. He's a part of a group called Super Friends of Metropolis, and they started corresponding about what happened on Facebook. Well, that kind of started a bunch of you know, comments. Oh, how horrible. Oh my gosh. We, you know, we should do something to help. And, and uh, so I chimed in and said, if you guys are interested in making donations and maybe taking a collection for him, I'll make sure that he gets them. And if you want me to represent our group as Superman, I'll show up in costume if you like. In Granite City, Mike was waiting anxiously for news. The next night, Bill Smith calls me up on the phone and says, Mike, you're all over the internet. I don't have a computer. I go to the computer at the library, and I couldn't believe all the stuff that was going on. Suddenly, people started putting posting things saying, we'd like to send something to Mike. Where can we send it? Bill and Keith Howard both gave out their addresses, saying that anyone who wanted to help Mike could send things to them. Gary Armbruster was still at large, and Mike's shelves sat empty. Bill and Keith waited, hoping that help would soon arrive, which is where we'll pick up in a minute on State of the Reunion. You're listening to State of the Reunion, and before the break, we'd met Mike Meyer, whose giant Superman collection had been stolen by a real-life villain. His friends had spread the word to the cyber world of Superman fans with the hope that they might replace some of Mike's collection. Well, there were a few packages at first. We thought it would die off pretty quickly. That's Kathy, wife of Bill Smith, one of Mike's friends. And then I remember distinctly one day coming home, and there had to be close to 50 packages piled up outside our front door to the point where I had to physically move the packages even to get in in my own front door. It's like they didn't let up. And the day something came from China, I thought, oh my gosh. Who were all these people, and why did they feel so moved to send stuff to Mike? We set up a voicemail number where people could call and tell us why. Hi, my name is Christina W. I am from Cottonwood, California. I live in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm in the U.S. Air Force. I was deployed to Afghanistan. They sent Mike not just any old stuff, but their favorite Superman items. I gave away about 90% of my Superman comic collection. A uh, Superman sweatshirt, a uh, knit cap. Action figure, a lunchbox. Mike asked for pictures of Superman. 
I, that's the first time I've drawn in years. And the reasons they did it kind of blew me away. You might be aware of like my voice going in and out um, from my having trouble holding on to the phone. I have cerebral palsy. I'm 53 and I was uh, born with it. To me, um, you know, Superman and many uh, characters just are the embodiment of making people with afflictions of some sort uh, feel uh, a bit better. I mean, in the spirit of the character, I mean, Superman has always been, you know, like a beacon of hope. I wanted to give this man who I'd never met before, you know, a sense of the same hope. By the time everything arrived, Keith and Bill had hundreds and hundreds of pounds of packages to deliver. Keith Howard decided to make a surprise visit to Mike at the McDonald's where he worked, then bring him back to the house where the piles of boxes would be waiting. He put on his Superman costume, George Reeves, the 1950s Superman, Mike's favorite. What did Mike say when he saw George Reeves Superman at, at, at his door? That was... That was one of the most chilling moments. Uh, I mean, it kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about it because I'll never forget it. He shook my hand, he closed his eyes, and he said, I just want to hold on to you because this is as close as I'll ever be to meeting the real George Reeves. Mike was overwhelmed. Going through all the boxes took months. In the meantime, the police actually did catch Gary Armbruster, the man who stole the collection, and Mike got most of it back. But after all those years of collecting... He started to realize that the objects themselves were not what really mattered. The gifts are really nice, but the most important thing is that people were thinking of me. That meant more than anything. Mike ended up with so many extra Superman items that he and Keith Howard went down to a children's hospital in St. Louis and donated a bunch of it to the kids there. And this experience has changed Mike's life. He feels like he's a part of something. And for Bill and Keith, helping Mike was a chance to make their hero real. More real than he'd ever seemed on a comic book page or in their imaginations. That brings something out of all of us. So that the, the deep inner part that wants to be good, to right a wrong, to fight an injustice for a total stranger. That's the spirit you're talking about. That's Superman. That's what Superman would do. And we all have gotten to take part in that. Superman was told by Al Letson, produced by Laura Starcheski, and edited by Taki Telenidis for State of the Reunion. Al is now the host of the public radio investigative series, Reveal. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. David. 
Foster Wallace. When you read something, it's not just a lie. You go, my God, that's me. You know, I've lived like that. I've felt like that. I'm not alone in the world. <laughs> There's this part that's, that's, um, that makes you feel full. Our last story this hour starts small on a train platform and ends big in a meta-tribute to the writer David Foster Wallace. And in between, it is densely packed with words and thoughts and many an homage to the late great writer. So perk up your ears and get ready for a fast-paced, funny, frenetic fantasy. Even the title is meta. Here is Poyuminen. And a warning, this piece contains strong language. So, like, this guy, while waiting for the train and listening to a podcast about a guy whose appendix burst. And while he was in hospital, a trainee nurse pulled out his breathing tube unsupervised and destroyed his esophagus, and he was deprived of oxygen for ten minutes and suffered severe brain damage. And his girlfriend, who later married him, takes care of him, and after years of determination and hard work, he can at least smile again, sort of, and make a bit of a noise. And they got him this device he can use to indicate if he's hungry or thirsty or cold. And they have a blog about their story. And they got a special van to get his wheelchair around in. And they want to inspire other people facing hardship to believe in themselves and know that if they work hard, they can overcome anything. He, the guy listening to that story and waiting for the train on his way home from work, feels a pang of envy, of actual envy for either the brain-damaged guy or his girlfriend. Not envy for having brain damage or having your partner incur brain damage, but for that they evidently don't have jobs. Presumably some kind of litigious settlement or insurance payout from the hospital for the negligence resulting in serious harm would support them fairly well, considering they can afford a special van and communication device and their own apartment with special accoutrements and accommodations for his differently abled state and condition. And not only they don't have jobs, but they have a story. An uplifting story that they go around telling and it gets them on the radio and all kinds of people write to them to say thank you and God bless you and what an inspiration. And their lives aren't just day after day of mundane, meaningless labour and toil and drudgery and routine. And the esophagus guy had been in Iraq. It was very dangerous and full of improvised explosive devices. But he made it home in one piece and had his whole life ahead of him. But then the appendix thing happened and the esophagus thing and the brain damage thing. And even after that, his father died in a car accident and his mother committed suicide and his brother went to prison for 20 years. And seriously, how much worse could things get for a person? But nevertheless, the guy waiting for the train has this fleeting thought that in some way... Maybe the esophagus guy's life is somehow actually preferable to his own. But then he feels really guilty and like a total asshole for thinking that. Like it's one of those sort of sick guilty things that pass through your head sometimes. And really you're just being a totally self-pitying fuckhead because you have a job and a house and a wife and a baby and a great life that 99.9% of the world wishes they had. And yet you are envying someone who has had so many terrible things happen to him. It's not even funny. Just because you're tired... And your job kind of sucks. It's a pretty fucked up thing to think. And the guy knows it's fucked up, even as he thinks it. But it should also be mentioned here that the guy, the one waiting for the train and listening to the podcast, is also possessed of a proclivity to write. As in, of a literary bent. I won't use the term aspiring writer to spare you the cliché, but also because he really has no aspirations. Writing is just his want, 
a thing he does. So at the same time as he's having this fucked up feeling of envy for the esophagus guy and subsequent guilt over having the fucked up feeling of envy, he's also thinking about how maybe there could be a story in there somewhere and trying to think how you could make that work. It couldn't just be a story about a guy waiting for the train, listening to a podcast and feeling envy and then guilt. That would just be prosaic and jejun. It would need something more. It would need to be repackaged and retooled in some way to give it more layers, more depth, to make it more literary, so to speak. It should be explained here, however, that a few years previously, the guy, the one waiting for the train, had come to feel like everything with regard to writing had been done before, and anything he tried was just rehashing the same old shit, and he got kind of bored with and sick of fiction, both writing and reading it, and as a result, his inclination to write it ebbed in a big way. But then he discovered the writer, David Foster Wallace. And in a short space of time, had read everything David Foster Wallace had written. Now, you may already know this, but although often referred to as a postmodern writer, and certainly descended from that literary lineage and heavily influenced by it, he, David Foster Wallace himself, was actually very much of the opinion that postmodernism, while groundbreaking and radical in its heyday, had, by the time he, David Foster Wallace, had come along, well and truly run its course. That the deployment of techniques such as deconstruction of traditional narrative structure and intertextuality and metafiction and irony, which techniques had made postmodernist literature so revolutionary in the 60s, had now become so commonplace that postmodernism had essentially become exactly the mainstream norm that it initially sought to depose. In essence, David Foster Wallace was calling for a new literary movement, one that evolved beyond the cynicism and hipness and ennui of postmodernism, that was willing to take risks and be heartfelt and naive and wide-eyed and sentimental. And yet he knew that the clock could not be turned back. Postmodernism had left its mark on the cultural landscape, and whatever new form literature took would have to concede that. And therein lay the crux of David Foster Wallace's conundrum. Is it possible to be cynical and naive at the same time? But then also, David Foster Wallace has this distinctive voice in his writing, this kind of persona that draws you in, makes you feel like you really know him, like he is speaking intimately and familiarly directly to you, the reader. Which actually was another big thing of his, that the voice in writing was very important, because writing's main job was to make the reader feel, if only for a short time, a bit less alone in the world. Which says a lot about David Foster Wallace, maybe. But anyway, the point here is that his writing voice is really engaging and funny and witty and likeable, and, to an aspiring writer, really hard not to totally copy, no matter how hard he or she might try not to. It's like reading David Foster Wallace ruins you forever as a writer, because it becomes impossible to not always forever after sound like a person trying hard to write like David Foster Wallace. Only not, obviously, anywhere near as well. I don't mean just in terms of the congenial voice, but also his stylistic quirks, E for G, the deployment of long, dense blocks of text without paragraph breaks, the explaterative run-on sentences, the pleroma of obscure vocabulary words, the use of abbreviations and acronyms, the intus libri inclusion of Latin phrases, the juxtaposition of colloquial idioms with Byzantine phraseology, and, of course, the extensive use of footnotes. Footnote one. Sometimes rambling on for pages even to the point of taking over from the main text for a while and becoming entirely separate stories, creating the sense of listening to one of those cool sorts of friends who always gets tangled up in their thoughts and sidetracked by tangents for a while before finally, eventually, coming back to their initial conversational thread. So in a way, and this is sort of a twisted irony, David Foster Wallace, 
who wanted to help move fiction out of the quagmire of postmodern too cleverness and set it free, kind of fucked fiction writing up forever, because everything anybody writes now stands in the shadow of his work. Or maybe that's just for the one guy, the one waiting for the train and listening to the podcast about the esophagus guy and then feeling envy and then feeling guilt and then thinking there could be a story in that and wondering how you'd make it work. And then thinking about how David Foster Wallace would have thought of a way because David Foster Wallace had a particular talent for exactly that. He has many stories in which we, the reader, are privy to the thoughts of a character that is somewhat repulsive and pondering some inner thought or desire that we can all relate to a bit. Just a bit, though. And in his stories, David Foster Wallace makes it kind of extreme, which is cool because you think, yeah, I do know that thought or feeling, but I'm nowhere near as fucked up as this guy. But anyway, the point is that the man waiting for the train, as he's thinking how would David Foster Wallace use that scenario to make a good story, or whatever you want to call it, the word story seems hardly apt, since the stuff he does sort of breaks a lot of narrative conventions, but to call them pieces sounds really pretentious. He realises that whatever he does is going to end up sounding just like some guy being a David Foster Wallace wannabe, ripping off David Foster Wallace's unique and distinctive style, without the brilliance and cleverness and keen wit and lovable humour and staggering vocabulary... And then the man thought, maybe the piece could work if he made it ragingly self-aware of it being a total rip-off slash pain slash homage to David Foster Wallace. Like twisting the whole thing around and being like, yeah, I know I am trying to be David Foster Wallace. Ha ha, that's the whole point. Look at me trying to ironically be just like David Foster Wallace. Which he thought might be something David Foster Wallace might try if he wasn't famous and was in the position the man was currently in. Which would mean David Foster Wallace wasn't famous, but someone else was famous for the exact same thing David Foster Wallace is actually famous for in the real world. And he wasn't sure whether David Foster Wallace would approve of his efforts with regard to trying to use irony and self-awareness doubling back on itself in this way to solve the conundrum, or if David Foster Wallace would think it was a terrible idea and so unbelievably and preposterously postmodern and metafiction-y and exactly the sort of thing he, David Foster Wallace, had been trying to get the hell away from and would hate. But he, the man waiting for the train, thought it might be good to at least try it out anyway and maybe even send it to David Foster Wallace to see what he, David Foster Wallace, thought, except he couldn't because David Foster Wallace was dead. And actually, really, that was the saddest part of the whole story. Poyuminen was written by John Steiner and read by Adam Norris. Louis Mitchell was the sound engineer. Poyuminen first aired on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radiotonic from RN's Creative Audio Unit. For those of you, like me, who had no idea what the word poyuminen meant, let me enlighten you. It means a specific type of metafiction in which the story is about the process of creation sometimes the creation of the story itself. Now I know there really is a word for everything. Hi, this is Katie. I can't pick up, but leave me a message and I'll call you back. Hey, Mingle, I just wanted to call you to find out when you're coming to Chicago, what you're going to be doing at Filmless, what you're excited to be seeing and doing when you're here. Call me back and let me know. Bye. Hi, it's Gwen. I'll call you back as soon as I can. Thanks. Gwenny, it's Mingle. 
yeah, sorry we've been missing each other, but I'm so excited to see you at Filmworth. I'm going to be doing a live 99% Invisible story, but it's never been on our show before. It's brand new. Um, it's going to be great, I think. I'm really excited about it. Oh, and I can't wait to go to the awards ceremony. It's like our, uh, it's our Oscars. And um, I don't know what I'm going to wear. Anyway, can't wait to see you in Chicago. Miss you so much. Okay, see you soon. Bye. And we hope to see you at the 2015 Third Coast Filmless Festival as well. It's coming up soon, October 23rd through the 25th at Chi Arts High School in Humboldt Park. Join the reunion. All of the fun, none of the clicks. Tickets are going fast, so get yours today. For more information, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Frontera Grill, Topo Labampo, and Shoco, serving handmade tortillas from organic Mexican heirloom corn. You can find more information, recipes, and inspiration at rickbayless.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.